Hello and a very warm welcome to season two of Angelica Love's Conversations. My name is Angelica Love and I'm a social psychologist. In this podcast, I sit down with fascinating people who are very hands-on when it comes to creating well-integrated, diverse, healthy and peaceful societies. They are entrepreneurs, activists, academics, and I've invited them to have a conversation with me about my favorite subject, social integration. In this episode, you can hear my conversation with Sabina Olkaya. She is the director of the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative, a research center within the University of Oxford. Sabina is a world expert on poverty and the co-developer of a method that measures poverty by considering several dimensions of people's lived experiences at once, the Multidimensional Poverty Index, or MPI. Thanks to Sabina, economists and policymakers are now no longer thinking of poverty just in terms of how much money individuals have to spend each day. Finally, they have a tool that allows them to also take into account a lack of access to education, malnutrition, reliance on toxic cooking fuel, inadequate sanitation and many other indicators when they measure and when they ultimately try to address poverty. In other words, Thanks to Sabina's work, how we measure and track poverty has become much more closely related to how poor people describe their situation themselves. In this conversation, which unfortunately suffered from a poor internet connection at times, I had the privilege of quizzing Sabina on the economics of poverty, how her research contributes to poverty reduction, and how she predicts the COVID-19 pandemic will affect poverty around the world. It was a tremendous privilege to speak to a world-class academic whose work really affects the response of institutions like the United Nations to poverty around the world. And I hope you enjoy learning from Sabina as much as I did. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Sabina Alkair. It's a real pleasure to have you on and I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. For over a decade, you've focused on the multidimensional nature of poverty and the development of a multidimensional poverty index How did you become interested in the subject of poverty? I think, like many people, one is aware um, through traveling of people's circumstances of life that are very, very different. And it almost is a judgment on the way that you live um, because you have privileges that they do not simply by matter of birth and upbringing. And so that, I think, sparked an interest in poverty initially thinking about studying medicine and that didn't work out and then now turning to development and um, trying to understand poverty in a more human, in a more well-rounded way and redress it in a way that really respects the empowerment, the culture and the the values um, of the protagonists of poverty, as it were. Yeah. What misconceptions do you think people who are not so familiar with research on human development have about poverty that you would like to see addressed? There is no one experience of poverty, no more than there is one experience of well-being. So we can think of people who are flourishing because they're athletes or flourishing because they're stay-at-home mothers or flourishing because they are great musicians or great novelists or great teachers or great corporate leaders or great plumbers or great sweepers and different activities, different kinds of identities that we have. Um, enable us to flourish in different ways. And to some extent, poverty has fewer degrees of freedom and that there are more commonalities about the kinds of disadvantage that people experience that afflict their lives. And yet, 
at the same time, it's very different. It's very different to be impoverished with people you love and in a safe neighborhood from impoverished with relational difficulties or in a dangerous location. Um, very different in terms of the urgency, if there are things like natural disasters or if there are you know, life-threatening circumstances, then the chronic stresses of life. So I think, and, and the subcultures of poverty just vary completely greatly from cultures of joy to places of brokenness in, in relational terms as well, or of isolation and loneliness. And so I think any one of us will have experienced poverty in some place at some time, or think that we have, even if it is through the media or online, but we have to maintain curiosity. And I think that the misconceptions are when we forget to be curious and see, well, how are these people confronting this particular situation? What are they doing about it? How do they feel about it? Um, what really are the challenges for them? I think it's that curiosity that sometimes is left behind if we think we know what poverty is and we know how to address it. Then we sort of leave the protagonists out of the equation. Yeah, this seems to deviate quite strongly from how we usually talk about poverty and how it's measured. How is poverty traditionally measured and why do you think we need to rethink the ways we measure poverty? So traditionally, economists have used money um, and very sensibly because not having money to buy food, not having money to take transport to go to the doctor, not having money to purchase clothes, to pay school fees is a big binding constraint on many, many people's lives. Not having decent jobs with a, a stream of income throughout the year. So it's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's definitely a part of the landscape, but it sometimes isn't the only uh, aspect. And so it doesn't tell the full story of how people experience different kinds of deprivations. And this is important because the same people who are monetarily poor may not be deprived in other ways and vice versa. So one of the things that got me quite interested early on was looking at the mismatch between income poverty and other indicators one by one. There was a paper by Francis Stewart that looked at the overlap between children who live in income poor families and children who are themselves malnourished or people with, who are illiterate and people who are in income poor families and found a, a big mismatch. And that's also the case in Europe where if you think of material deprivation like not being able to have a vacation or um, have more than one pair of shoes or um, eat meat, fish, or the vegetarian equivalent twice a week, mm. and income, then you would imagine that they were aligned because income can buy all of those things. But actually, there's a large mismatch, and only half of the people deprived in one in a chronic way are deprived in the other, according to one of the studies that um, triggered my interest. Mm -hmm. And so then I thought, well, if monetary poverty isn't necessarily a proxy of undernutrition, of illiteracy, of lack of access to health care, of good housing, other, other attributions that characterize situations of poverty. It would be very interesting to try to measure the overlapping deprivations um, together and see how that is different than monetary poverty. And does this way of measuring the overlapping deprivations also aid in the efforts that countries can undertake to reduce poverty? Yes. I mean, I think that what we, many people have wanted to measure many what they call social indicators, as well as infrastructure, as well as monetary poverty. And yet there's something about the word poverty 
that has an urgency about it. If it's poverty, then you really have a moral imperative to redress it, mm. to confront it, end it, to reduce it. And if you then are hit by 20 statistics or 10 statistics saying this percentage of children are malnourished, this percentage of people live in substandard housing, this percentage of people this or that, it's a little bit baffling because there's so much to take in. So you sort of lose, well, what is my priority? And, and it's easy to get overwhelmed. And so I think the, the need to rethink how to measure poverty was to try to take that sense of urgency that we feel um, as citizens or as leaders um, about the word poverty, that kind of obligation to create a society where certain kinds of poverty are, are not experienced and um, apply it not only to monetary poverty, but to some of these other deprivations at the same time. Yeah. Recently, you published together with the United Nations Development Programme a report on the Global Multidimensional Poverty Index 2020. And I read your report with great interest. It provides such a rich overview over all the various facets in which people in different countries experience different kinds of deprivation. What is the MPI and how did you arrive at the indicators that really underpin the multidimensional poverty index? And I'm also particularly curious in hearing a little bit more from you about what other indicators you considered, what would you have liked to see included in the index that didn't make the cut in the end? So the MPI is a multidimensional poverty index, and there are many MPIs. The methodology that underlies them, I was very fortunate to develop with James Foster, who is a leader in the field of poverty measurement and co-authored one of the most widely used classes of monetary poverty measures, the Foster Thorbeck class of measures. And we extended that into multidimensional space. And so an MPI basically is an, a measure that uses the first of that family of measures. In the case of the global MPI, it's a particular measure that we co-designed with the UNDP 10 years ago, launching in 2010. And it has three dimensions, health, education, and living standards and 10 indicators. And the indicators are defined such that each person is coded as deprived or non-deprived in each of the 10 indicators. Mm -hmm. So you are deprived in nutrition if somebody in your household is undernourished, stunted or with a low body mass index or underweight as a child. You are deprived in child mortality if somebody in your household lost a child in the last five years. You're deprived in years of schooling if nobody in your household has completed six years of schooling at all. So you don't have somebody, in a sense, who can read, who can you know, support the household in those kinds of, of tasks. You're deprived if you have a, any child that's not attending school up to the age at which they would class finish class eight. Mm -hmm. So school attendance is sort of really universally important. And then you're deprived if you don't have clean cooking fuel, if you don't have adequate sanitation or safe drinking water, or it's too far away half an hour or more, if you don't have electricity, or if your housing materials are um, rudimentary or natural. And also if you don't own more than one of a set of eight small assets, like a mobile phone, a radio, a telephone, a, a television, animal cart, a bicycle, a motorcycle, a refrigerator, a computer. And if you own a car or a truck, you're not deprived in assets. So using those indicators, what we do is identify each person, which deprivations they have of those 10, 
And so we have their profile. And then we add them up. So the dimensions are equally weighted and indicators are equally weighted within them. The three dimensions, and if you're deprived in one dimension or in the equivalent of weighted indicators, you are poor by the global MPI. And that permits us to have as common of a measuring stick as we are able to across different countries. It's not the same across every country. Some countries miss an indicator. Some countries particularly only have child malnutrition. They don't have women or men. And many more have women, but only a few have men. So there, there's some incomparabilities between the indicators, but it's as good as you can get with the data that we have. That's what the MPI is. And I think the reason it ties back into policy is that what you report is you give you know, the head of state a headline. You can say, did the MPI go up or down? with statistical significance. And so they have one number instead of 10 numbers to show to a journalist. Um, but then when your ministers come and say, well, what is it? You can show them the composition of poverty by the 10 indicators. What percentage of people are poor and are deprived in each of the indicators. So you know what to do to reduce it. And you have a measure where if you reduce any deprivation of any poor people, MPI will always go down. And then you also have simpler indicator. You can say what percentage of people who are, are poor. And that's a very necessary number to explain it to the public. They want to know, is it 50? Is it 40? Is it 20? Is it 70? And then you can say by each indicator, you know, what is the percent contribution of each indicator? And you can do that nationally. You can do it by rural urban area, by age group, by subnational region, data permit by ethnicity, by disability status in the household, many different features. And I think this is where then you can start to give information that different actors might need. A local governor will want to know, okay, what's the level of poverty in her local area? And what's the composition of poverty? And then she can see the local plan. Somebody who's trying to allocate resources across the country and wants to know where's poverty the worst, where should I put my money, will want you know levels of poverty by district. If you're looking across sectors, you need to know how people are deprived in, in the different dimensions indicators. It really does provide such a rich tapestry of information with which much more nuance, not only on the number of people in poverty, but also the intensity of poverty experienced, which I found really striking looking at your report. Measuring poverty in this way, was there anything that surprised you? Was there anything that changed your own fundamental thinking about poverty as you've been analysing this kind of data over the past decade? I think there are two big surprises. One is just on the data, which is sort of the substrata. It's not the really exciting bit about the results. But I was surprised we couldn't include information on work or on violence or on empowerment or on the environment other than water sanitation and uh, housing quality, cooking fuel. So I was surprised at some level by the difficulty of getting data on really core aspects of poor people's lives or on any relational aspects like social isolation. But we don't have it. We need an indicator for at least 75 countries and at least three and a half billion people to even consider that indicator. And we revised the index just in 2018, revised every single indicator, looked for more, and we were not able to go beyond what we have now. So that was a surprise. But the other surprise was that we use the demographic and health surveys, multiple indicator cluster surveys. They are free, they're online, they're disaggregated, they're high quality. 
And I was also surprised how much data are available for poor countries. But still to this day, people say, why don't you have quality of education in the measure? Why don't you have work in the measure? And we simply cannot. So I think that's a, just an honest recognition that there are limits on what you can, what we can measure at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think the other surprise is that if you look at the global picture of poverty, previous to this, we used $1.90 a day. It was then $1.25 a day when we began. And most of the poverty was in sub-Saharan Africa. But when we computed the MPI, um, the headline in 2010 was that there were more multidimensionally poor people in the eight poorest states of India than in 26 countries of sub-Saharan Africa. And that was sort of illustrating the real surprise, which is that multidimensional poverty featured a much greater extent of poverty across South Asia than monetary poverty. And so that's been an interesting finding. And then we've developed in different ways, but the patterns of monetary poverty and multidimensional poverty are not the same, whether it's Ethiopia, whether it's Niger, some of these countries where the levels of monetary and multidimensional poverty diverge a lot. So I think that that, to me, brought home the need that these are sisters. These are measures where you can't take one and say it trumps the other. It's not one's better than the other, but they're complements. A metaphor could be two eyes. When you have two eyes, you see normally, you see in 3D. But if you injure your eye and you only have one eye, then you lose your depth perception and um, you can't pour your cup of tea into your cup. And so hopefully by having both of the the monetary and a a good non-monetary measure and using them in tandem, you're able to get a better bead on really the kinds of poverty that need to be addressed by public policy. You've already mentioned that across countries we see very different patterns of deprivation, of multiple deprivation. What I found particularly interesting about the report is that you actually have trend data for 75 countries, including almost 5 billion people. And in 65 of these countries, the global MPI value has been reduced significantly over the past few years. And I would like to pivot a little bit and talk about what works in in terms of poverty reduction. And maybe Sierra Leone, the country where almost 4% of the population moved out of poverty between 2013 and 2017 might be an interesting country to talk about. What do you think has been done in Sierra Leone to bring about such change? And what can other countries learn from places where poverty reduction efforts seem to really have had a a significant and huge effect? No, thank you very much. That's a, a very good question and it's the right question to answer. And I don't yet have a satisfactory answer for it in that this study of 5 billion people over two time periods took a lot of work because it was the first time we ever did a comprehensive study at this scale. And so our work to date has just been producing the numbers, seeing the trends with statistical significance nationally by subnational regions, by age cohort and rural urban areas and pulling out some of the, the stories by indicator, for example, which countries reduce the indicators the fastest. And this is really a call to others to also look at those data and with exactly your question in mind, what went right? What can we learn? What what were the lessons now that we have some objective information? And where is the MPI not capturing other things we need to think about? You mentioned Sierra Leone. So of those 75 countries, the fastest reduction was in Sierra Leone to use the more intuitive number, the percentage of people who are poor, 
they fell from 74% to 58% between the years of 2013 and 2017. And those were also the years when the Ebola crisis raged in Sierra Leone. There was a particular surprise. You know, picture us, we are geeks, we're running numbers, and then finally, finally, results pop up on your screen, and, and then you see the fastest country. So we are trying to find out, you know, from colleagues, uh, the director of the Human Development Report Office that uh, produces the global MPI with us was in that region, in the Regional Bureau of Africa, and he was in Sierra Leone during the pandemic. Um, we also talked with people in government, and I don't think they expected these results. And I also probably don't think the global MPI tells the whole story, but at a particular point in time, it is telling something that's important. And there was a stress clearly in the Ebola response on providing hand washing, on nutrition, on um, reducing uh, child mortality, on educating people and reaching out even into remote areas with different facilities. And Sierra Leone had significant reduction in all of its indicators and in most of its subnational regions. It had the fastest reduction of child poverty of all the countries. So many things seem to have gone right. And we had a call yesterday with the director um, of the poverty work. Sierra Leone also has a national MPI whose indicators are tailored to their own definitions and priorities of poverty. And we will be studying more to find out more exactly what went right. But clearly there was a big emphasis during a terribly tragic time in social investments and the international community alongside the government were involved. So I think we will learn more from there. We'll learn more from Mauritania, the second fastest country, or Liberia, the third. You know, there are many interesting countries uh, where we really want to ferret out and, and find what went right. And I think what we are finding um, very initially, just from looking at the data, is that it may not be so difficult to reduce this kind of really acute poverty. And, and I, I hesitate to say it, but it, it might be possible, even with imperfect institutions, to get down you know, these kinds of very difficult uh, kinds of circumstances. It might be possible without all of the wonderful circumstances that we would like in terms of a strong economic framework, um, a good presence of political stability and, and leadership and strong institutions. And, but if, if we were able even to reduce poverty without those things, then although independently we want a very good political environment, we want very good governance, but at least no matter what, we want the kinds of poverty that this measure uh, makes visible to be reduced. And so it should be, in a sense, an encouraging lesson, um, an encouraging set of results. Of course, the first thing is that, wow, we've seen a huge improvement in Sierra Leone during a health crisis. And of course, that's particularly relevant as we're recording this during lockdown, during the coronavirus pandemic. And that's something I'd like to return to because you seem to suggest that in crisis also lies opportunity for more substantive um, infrastructural changes that really affect poverty. And then the other thing I'd like to highlight to our listeners, which I think many people who are familiar with with ceiling effects might, might be pricking their ears, is that we saw the greatest reduction in poverty in the countries that had medium levels of poverty overall. So we didn't see the greatest reduction in the countries that had the largest space to grow, so to speak, which I found particularly interesting. And some people might expect that we see greatest change in the poorest countries because they have the, the biggest room for change. But um, your data seems to suggest that it's 
I mean, the quote unquote moderate level of poverty is still very significant, still very um, harsh. But in the medium range of deprivation is where we see the, the biggest change. So that's really very encouraging. Yes, but I think that we will be actually focusing on this a little bit because our poorest country is Niger. We don't have trends for South Sudan, but that's there. But countries like Ethiopia or Mali, um, they have very high levels of poverty. But we don't only report the MPI and we don't only look at the headcount ratio or MPI reduction. We also look at the reduction of intensity. And we also look at subsets of poverty, for example, the poor and the destitute. And what's very interesting is that when we do look at those subsets of, of poverty, we do see a big profile of the poorest countries. The picture really changes. So, for example, Niger is not among the 10 fastest countries to reduce MPI. But in terms of destitution, it's the fourth fastest. And similarly, in terms of reduction of uh, intensity, it reduced intensity very fast. The poorest countries tend to reduce the deprivation load of the poor. And that's made visible in intensity. And also, uh, there could be people who are in severe hunger. And so the distance from severe hunger to hunger to being not undernourished at all is very far. But in our measure of destitution, we measure severe hunger. We measure open defecation. We measure people where nobody in the household has even one year of school. You know, these, these kinds of really stark realities. And when those are reducing fast, it's a very positive story. And so we will be bringing some of those out on World Poverty Day, actually, October 17th. So, but I think if you just think intuitively, in the poorest countries, they might have not one person who's undernourished in their household, but they might have seven. And yet to graduate from that indicator, they all seven of them need to come out of hunger or severe hunger and become well-nourished. And so a lot of the work the poorest countries is made visible in these other measures or in these other ways before it's made visible in the MPI. But I think what's exciting is we have a suite of measures that can take all of the countries, including the poorest, and show how they are reducing these kinds of, of deprivation. And the lessons are that, they, that there is a strong reduction and that very, very few are increasing. These were all obviously pre-COVID, but I think it's still a positive <laughs> finding. I'm going to pivot a little bit now. As you know, this is a podcast about ways we can build bridges across societal rifts, social integration, community cohesion. We know from psychological and sociological research that differences in people's socioeconomic status and the deprivation have a huge influence on a very large range of life experiences. And of course, many people understand that they, they are also intimately intertwined with some of the most significant recent upheavals in developed nations, including the rise of populism, anti-migration protests, Brexit, etc. In your experience studying poverty and human development, how would you say poverty affects the fabric of society and community? I think it isn't an easy question, and I don't think that you can answer it in, in one way. It, it goes back to, in a sense, what I was saying earlier, that in some places, poverty leads to destabilization, and there, there can be outbreaks of conflict and in, or, or of migration. And in other places, it's leads to innovation. <laughs> um, in other places, you know, people have a kind of a, a joy in community and helping each other, even though 
because they are all affected by a, a shock, like a natural disaster, um, a drought or locusts at the moment, for example, then it, it, it has a different kind of effect, which is direct, but it doesn't have the, the social or the political or the violent repercussions. And so I don't think that I would want to generalize. I'd want to be curious and ask, you know, in each place, how is poverty manifesting itself and where do we need to focus on? You know, is there a lot of isolation? Are there a lot of social divisions or are people pulling together? We often find that people's relationship networks are quite starkly separate, segregated across socioeconomic divides and that people who are relatively poor often struggle to access opportunities for furthering their own opportunities and chances in life, for example, through professional networks and, and, and that poverty really impacts on psychological factors like perceived control over one's life, perceived self-efficacy, stress and threat levels, anxiety, deprivation um, has a huge effect on mental health. All of these psychological side effects of poverty in turn stifling people's efforts to move out of poverty. So I'm particularly struck by, as you said, the need to be really curious about the ways that poverty sustains itself, partly through its effect on the fabric of society and the relationships that people might need in order to move out of it and, and their, ultimately their ability to use these relationships. We've talked a lot about poverty as deprivation in terms of fundamental freedoms and choices, but we also know that people, people's own subjective perception of their relative deprivation in society plays a huge role. I know that you're an, an expert on Amartya Sen's capability approach to understanding human development, which of course also includes a concern for the distribution of opportunities within society. So a way of capturing relative opportunities across a population. What is the significance of inequality or relative poverty as opposed to absolute poverty? There's a lot in what you said that's, that's very rich. So I'll won't do justice, but I'll, I'll offer three different reflections. One is about the quality of, of relationships. And I think that that is a, a fundamental aspect which needs to be studied alongside poverty. So, for example, in the Voices of the Poor study that the World Bank did in 1999-2000, one of the surprises was the extent to which poor people and communities articulated as one dimension of ill-being, humiliation. Mm -hmm. That is, social relationships that made people feel like they lacked dignity or the respect of others. Uh, and there are groups, for example, Kim Samuel and the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness is one which looks within the context of poverty at the ways that lack of social connectedness can exacerbate the situation. You know, the experience of social isolation is experienced in the brain very much like pain. And it can, as you said, lead to depression, lead to um, immobility, which is perhaps what's not needed when people must be extra entrepreneurial, because as you said, they might not have the, the bridging social capital to have support from wider circles to advance. Understanding the relational framework uh, of poor communities and of people with different personality structures is, is important because it can be two children in the same household and one has a perception of self-efficacy and another one does not. 
um, and, and why do those occur and how can we support people? I think the second interesting thing is a question of support. Usually development work is very much focused on the, the physical realities. Um, as I mentioned in the global MPI of, of health and education and living standards. But there is also a question about you know, the psychological and, and the skills that are sometimes required. Uh, and there have been some really interesting groups that have combined a very concrete development work with one-on-one -on -one support. There's a, a wonderful group in Costa Rica called Peñal, which recognizes you know, the vocations and the aspirations and the distinct journeys of poor people and where you know, maybe people in other strata of society would go to therapy or would have different kinds of support networks. That kind of emotional support is not necessarily available regularly. And so investing in that and, and creating it may be you know, a very interesting way of complementing and, in a sense, catalyzing the effects of other, other activities. And the last was your, your question on relative poverty. So Amartya Sen, who is very much the idea framework in which I have always operated and whose ideas of capability continue to really inspire me to this day, he recognizes that something could be relative in the space of income, but absolute in the space of capabilities. So I might have less money than you, but what that means is that I simply cannot buy warm clothes or I don't get a job interview. And so something that's relative in income space could become absolute in the space of, of people's lived lives, of capabilities. You know, the global MPI and much of our work is on absolute measures of poverty rather than of relative measures of inequality. But there is a need for, for understanding both of them. And particularly when they are mobilized, to affect political instability, to affect relationships across societies. That's also a further motivation for addressing them, the, the perception that it is unfair. Yeah, the reason I ask about relative inequality is that during the current COVID-19 crisis, a lot of people are talking about the risk of exacerbation of pre-existing inequalities. You know, the, I'm sure you've, you've heard the image being used of we're all in the same storm, but not all in the same boat. And people um, are experiencing the crisis very differently, globally speaking across nations, of course, but also across different parts of the same national population. Your report on multidimensional poverty in, in 2020 highlighted some of the ways we can think about um, multidimensional poverty during or as a consequence of the COVID-19 crisis. Could you share with our listeners some of your thinking about this, how you think the COVID-19 crisis is affecting multidimensional poverty, and maybe then also offering a few thoughts on how it might affect poverty in developed nations, like in the UK, for example? Yes. So in the Global MPI report, we did some predictions using the existing trends that we had we cast them forward to look at, for example, how many countries were on track to cut their global MPI by one half between the years of 2015 and 2030, when the sustainable development goals are to be met. And we found that 47 of the 75 countries were on track and that eight might be on track. But then we asked another question, which was all of the data that we just released was collected before COVID. And so what are the possible 
impacts of COVID on these global multidimensional poverty figures. And that's a difficult task because none of us know. And also because countries are doing different policies to prevent and to mitigate the COVID impacts. And we don't have enough information at our fingertips to be able accurately to reflect each country's circumstance. So we use the World Food Program projections and the UNESCO projections to look at six scenarios of increases in undernutrition and children being out of school. And across those six scenarios, they would set us back even if just those two indicators increased and nothing else increased. It would still set us back between 3.1 and 9.9 years. So almost up to a decade, which was quite sobering given that we started the MPI a decade ago. And really the hope is that these numbers will not announce a reality, but they will urge action to prevent that reality from coming to be. Uh, that goes without saying. And so we are not saying this will be the case. We're saying this could be the case. Let's join forces to make sure it never happens. But we also looked at the global MPI, for example, to look at the people who might have comorbidities, that is for whom the risk of contracting COVID would be the highest. And that might include people who were undernourished and had immune systems compromised because of it. Those who lacked clean water, so couldn't necessarily protect themselves and prevent COVID. And those who cooked with solid wood, therefore experiencing indoor air pollution, which increases the chances of acute respiratory symptoms. And because COVID attacks the lungs, that's a very problematic combination. And we found that, again, it's hundreds of millions of people who have these risks at the same time. So those are different ways of using our existing data frame to recognize some of the COVID impacts. But we've worked beyond that with countries to identify the near poor who are falling into poverty, the informal workers who are losing their jobs, the migrants who in the context of migrating are also losing better living standards and going to places with worse living standards and living conditions and different ways that either the economic recession that we are in the middle of or natural disasters are also increasing um, deprivations uh, of livelihoods and of, of, of direct social indicators. And again, what we can try to do is simply use microsimulation, use empirical techniques with data to create our best guess at what might happen or what is happening or what has happened but then use them very much as a tool to inform action, to try not to make people feel very depressed and powerless, but to make them realize that, you know, action, compassion, solidarity, working together is really vital at this time. And it is also possible to build change. Amartya Sen gave the wonderful story in his Financial Times article, April 15th, during the COVID crisis that during uh, different situations, and he gave some positive and some negative ones, the actions of governments in that case had really shaped you know, the outcomes of, of many, the capabilities of many people in terms of history. And the positive example was in Britain during World War II with the food availability decline, more equitable rationing was therefore imposed. And because of that, actually life expectancy increased very greatly by six and a half years for men or seven years for women, whereas in the previous decade, it had increased by 1.2 and 1.5 years respectively. And the point is that actually a policy that's not rocket science, that's not terribly complicated or terribly 
difficult to implement still can have a far-reaching change. So I guess that's the, the dialogue we're trying to have with the numbers um, around COVID is exploring in a, in a very scary way some of the impacts this can be having on poor people's lives. The final thing I'll say there is that we do need more data and we need data after COVID and hats off to the institutions that are doing rapid socioeconomic impact assessments and surveys. And we're very much hoping that these surveys will enable us to have rapidly available data on how COVID is progressing, which will give to government again more tools to redress it very powerfully and very effectively because they'll have enough information on what to do. One thing that the corona crisis has brought up, and I'm particularly familiar with the, the British context in that regard, is new dimensions of poverty, including what we now refer to as data poverty. People not having enough um, data available to, for example, join online education programs for their children. In the US, we hear of people parking outside of schools and spending the day in the car with their children so that they can access public Wi-Fi and therefore enable them to participate in online classrooms. The MPI with its 10 indicators, how flexible is it? How fluid is it to take account of these emerging forms of inequality as the structures of societies and the, the infrastructure we need to access certain provision changes and develops, for example, through technological change? So the technology that underlies the MPI is completely flexible. And so I mentioned the global MPI has the same 10 indicators, but dozens of countries now have national MPIs where they tailor the indicators to their circumstances. So Dominican Republic or Panama uh, include internet access as an indicator of deprivation because in their context, it's, it, it was already vital pre-COVID. And then alongside these multidimensional poverty indices, since the COVID pandemic, we've been working with countries to do multidimensional vulnerability indices, which add the COVID particular indicators, which include internet access, they include facilities to wash your hands, they include overcrowding, they include intergenerational households. Some surveys have existing conditions of heart or diabetes or other conditions that might affect a person's ability to resist COVID or might affect their uh, response to lockdown measures. So the technology is very, very flexible. We have access to internet information for an increasing number of countries. And actually we are just doing a, a search through the data sets to see if we have it for a critical mass and to, to consider making a moderate MPI that would include access to internet, might also include obesity, which is both COVID related and also related in many societies to a condition of poverty and some other variables. So we are a, a numbers team. So what we do at the global level takes time, but countries are already way out in front of us doing things with their own national data sets. And we are alongside supporting them, but at a, a much smaller scale, just country by country rather than at a global scale. Both the global and the national MPIs are very much alive and, and developing. And you have already raised so many different areas where follow-up research is keenly needed. I'd like to wrap up our conversation by asking you about what you have seen works. What are some of the promising strategies to tackle both local and global poverty? And what can our individual listeners 
do to contribute to such poverty reduction efforts? Or is this something that happens purely at the policy level where individual citizens can do relatively little? Absolutely not. I think there's a lot that different people can do. And a lot of times poverty makes us feel powerless. It's what can one person do? I'm this little person. I don't have political voice. I'm not the president of the country. But there are many, many ways of acting. So I think clearly political leadership is vital. And where there is political leadership, we've seen spectacular results in reducing multidimensional poverty. But we've also seen strong results without that leadership. And in, in those cases, what's interesting is many more local stories of women taking action, of returning migrants, of you know, NGOs, uh, as well as, as corporations working alongside governments. And so I think that there are many paths to success. I think that in terms of political leadership and those who support political leaders, it can be very important. And we have a network with 60 countries, a South-South network. And in some countries, literally, it's been a person fresh from school who got excited about the MPI and then worked on it and then got into a government job and then made it their you know, purpose to make a measure for that subnational region. And then it got took, taken up at the national level. Uh, and so it could be you know, a young person just out of school, just going to their very first job in government who can make a change, be a change maker. But it can also be somebody who went into politics years ago, really with a passion for poverty. And maybe this is offering them another moment to really take up those early ideals and to be a voice for the voiceless and re-engage at a new level. And it can also be corporate leaders. President Santos talked about taking corporate leaders into the field, dressed in blue jeans, to be enumerators for one day and ask poor people questions about poverty and what a change of outlook that created in the corporate leaders. And then the innovation that they had when they went home about how they could use their own strategies, networks, and, and capabilities to support people in the country. And we have lots of examples of that. They're businesses that are using MPI on their own employees and then fighting it among their own employees with all the pr proper ethical safeguards of that. But it's a, it's a wonderful way to engage. Jean Drez has what I think is the best book on the subject. It's called Sense and Solidarity. And it describes research, which is something of importance for academics, but also people in think tanks also people in government, also students, and how research can be appropriately engaged. And in a sense, by being engaged in the work and in the lives of the protagonist of poverty, uh, the research itself is improved. It's made more rigorous, more informed, and perhaps what we might call in a general way, more policy relevant. And the person also then is able to both publish a good paper, but also do something useful. So. I think a lot of our energies is trying to find an appropriate balance between really top-notch academic research and engaged research and not seeing them at all as intention, but actually as synergistic. And so I would certainly suggest any students or any people teaching courses to look up Sense and Solidarity by Jean Drez and see how that resonates with their own journeys. What you're saying strongly resonates with the overall purpose of this podcast, which is to show that really it is engaging with people whose lived realities are so different from our own that can often be the catalyst for substantive change and greater social equality, but also to highlight the need for good data 
in order to underpin policy efforts and for really critical engagement with what we know and whether we can trust what we know when it comes to efforts to find the best solutions for some of the most pressing social issues like poverty. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise and for gifting us your time. I really appreciated learning from you. And I'll, of course, share the resources that you mentioned with our listeners. Thank you very much, Angelica, and, and thank you to all of the listeners. And we do look forward to your engagement, your exchange, and your own innovation in this field. It's so important. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Angelica Loves Conversations. As always, if you enjoyed listening to Angelica Loves Conversations, I would be grateful if you chose to subscribe to the show. Just click follow on Spotify or subscribe on most other podcast platforms. And subscribing actually means that you won't miss any of the new episodes, including two bonus episodes that will be released in a few weeks' time. Finally, there are two small things that you could do to help other people find the show. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, I would be really grateful if you could leave a rating or a review. Ask a friend if you're unsure how to do this. And whilst you're speaking to that friend, or any other friend, really, tell them about the podcast. Maybe they'd enjoy Angelica Loves Conversations too. Right, that's all from me. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to you joining me again for the next episode of Angelica Loves Conversations. Bye bye.